It's uh, good to see uh, old and new friends, that's for sure. And um, I apologize. I, I love the ministry part, but I just don't get the car thing. I'm sorry. <laughs> I was at a car show the other week. And I just thought, I don't, I don't get it. No, but I, I, to each, I mean, guys, I'm glad there are guys that love cars. But uh, some guys would say uh, football's stupid, too. And I kind of say that now. I had someone come to me. <laughs> I had so, someone come to me the other day, and they said, uh, hey, you're still an Eagles fan. I said, no, not since they stopped paying me. <laughs> so, so that's about my affiliation to the Philadelphia Eagles. No, I'm just kidding you. So I know how deep that runs here. So let's, let's pray before we get started. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this day, Lord. I thank you that you are a covenant-keeping God, that you, Lord, seek us, and you're... you're uh, Proactive, you, you, initiate, you, you initiate in all things, Father. So we gather together in your name. I pray for each man here, Lord. I'm thankful to see these men gathering together in your name, Father. I pray your name would be high and lifted up here, and we would honor your Son, Jesus Christ, that your Holy Spirit would reign now, Father, that we would decrease, that you might increase. And the words that we speak now, and as we open the word and come into the throne room of your grace, would be for your glory and would come from your heart, Father, for each one of us, Father. So we settle our hearts we wait in expectance for you, Father, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I wanted to share with you real quick from, uh, from the Word of God. And then, if we have time, uh, hopefully I can tell you a little bit about my story. Um, you know, everybody comes to the events and want to hear football stories. And, uh, you know, God used football to, to bring me to, to my knees, to bring me to the throne room of grace. And... Uh, I thank God for the opportunity. I said, God, give me a great privilege. He allowed me to reach the highest pinnacle in my profession for the purpose of getting there and saying, this isn't it. This isn't it. There's something more. And that's when I began to search. And that's when God showed up. So, guys, if, if we're willing, each one of us, normal men in this book called the Bible, no great gifts or abilities, when they were willing to turn and listen, he made their name great. His hope for you is that you would be great, but it's not by the world's standards. This word's going to open up to us and tell us, how do we become great? So as we look, uh, I'm going to share with you, if you have your Bibles, you could turn to Second uh, Timothy chapter 3. And as we... Uh, Let's read before I start out, okay? In verse 10, we'll start out. And it says, But you have carefully followed my doctrine, manner of life, purpose, faith, long-suffering, love, perseverance, persecutions, afflictions, which happened to me at Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, what per persecutions I endured. And out of them all the Lord delivered me. Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ will suffer persecution. But evil men and impostors will grow worse and worse, deceiving and being deceived. But you continue in the things which you have learned and been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the Holy Scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is God-given and is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness, 
that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good work. So we see this as, uh, this is, of course, we all know this, you're probably familiar with it. It's written to us from Paul, and it's written to us from in prison. And he knows that his life is going to be taken from him. It's his last um, incarceration in, in prison. He knows he's going to be put to death. And, you know, I've had the honor of being by the bedside of people that were passing in, into eternity, people that were unsaved and people that were saved. And it doesn't matter. They, there's not one person saying, boy, I, I wish I'd have spent another day at work. Or, boy, I wish I'd have got another sale. Or, boy, I wish I went to that uh, championship Eagles game. They're asking of things of where do I go when I die? What is life all about? And guys, we have that opportunity today to, to dig deeper into those questions. It's the things the world never wants us thinking about. It busies our lives, amusement, to be entertained. A, muse means to think. For muse, put the prefix A in front of it. A, muse means not to think. And so what, what we see here is Paul's at the end of his life. He's in prison. There's persecution going on in the church. We know that uh, there was a fire in Rome, Nero. Um, Rome was burning, and uh, he blamed the Christians. So now there's persecution within the church. People are fleeing the faith. You know, the reason that God has put this on my heart, a lot of what we're seeing in this time in, in the Bible, it's happening today. It's right in front of us. It's before us. You know, so it's, there's an evil culture where, where things that are mocking God and, and, and the things that were sacred, that were created by God sacred. What it is to be human, what it is to be a man, what it is to be a woman, marriage, our children, family. It's all being redefined by an evil culture. And so that was going on at the time as well. There was compromise in the church. There was false teachers. Timothy is in a place called Ephesus, where Paul is writing to him, which was like the church in Las Vegas. I mean, all kinds of things were going on in Ephesus. And we see this one thing. There's a charge from Paul. You know, when I was at the bedside of those that were per perishing, they had requests. You know, hey, take care of my wife. Take care of my kids. They, you know, where do I, you know, they had requests. Paul has an imperative. He has a command. He's charging him. Why? Because this is what he was called to do. He's finished his race. He has run. He's entered. He's run. And he, now he's finishing. So he's entering in. He does not fear death. He doesn't fear what's in front of him. Because the one he is entrusted to, Jesus Christ, is faithful to kept, have kept it. And as we immerse ourselves in this word, we should have that same confidence. We should have that same fellowship with this God. If I asked each one of you today, if you could have the physical Jesus with you every day, walking with you, abiding with you, telling you what to do, instructing you, correcting you. Yeah, hey, Jesus, what do we do here? Should I go there? Should I leave my job? Should I change jobs? Should I go there? Yeah, tell me, tell me, tell me. We would say, yeah, I want that physical Jesus. But right now it says... In Ephesians, what does it say to us? That you would be filled with the spirit of Christ. That he would dwell in you richly. Jesus says, I must go away. It's profitable for you that I go away. So that I can send the helper. One the same as the original. That same Jesus now is dwelling in us. But we neglect him. 
We neglect him because we're still rooted in things of the past. We're still rooted in things. And we talk about that as we say that. So Paul is saying to them, listen, I know all this stuff is happening in the world. There's compromise in the world. The culture is evil. There's all this stuff. There's compromise in the church. What does he say? But for you. But for you, man of God. He challenges them. He gives them an imperative. It's personal. It's intentional. It's a call to action. Each one of us today should be hearing that call as we look at the world and things going on in the world, but for you. And we talk about this, and the reason is, as we see this, Paul is building up to this, because all through 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, we see him building up. What's he doing? He's giving Timothy commandments, because he knows he's going away. He knows his time of departure is coming at hand. He knows he's passing it on to Timothy. And what does he say to him? Flee and pursue. Fight the good fight. Of faith, stir up the gift that's in you, hold fast, be strong in grace, endure hardships, remind them and charge them, invest this in faithful men. Commands continually, encouraging, building up. You know, we took a look at this and we say, what's the critical thing here? He's looking, he's examining the character of the man. The character of the man. And if we explain character, what are we saying? We're saying the, the qualities... Or traits that distinguish them. But see, that's not enough. See, the world wants to flatten that out, character. Character isn't just qualities and traits that define you. It's moral qualities and character traits that define you. It's moral. It's not what we are. It's why we are. What do I mean by that? Well, if I go to the supermarket and I see a young man helping a woman carry her groceries to her car. I look and I go, wow, he has good character. What he's doing shows his character. And then I walk into the store, and that night I come home on the news and I hear about a guy that walked an old woman to her car with her groceries, knocked her down, stole her groceries, and took her pocketbook. See, the motive of why he did it was wrong. We look at people's actions and say they have good character. But your character isn't about what you do. It's why you do it. It's what is it rooted in. See, Paul's character was rooted in, in eternity. It depend, this, your character will be dependent on what governs your life. What's that determined by? Foundations. Foundations. What are you building on? You know, we started the football ministry out here. And... Um, I would say to the kids, first day of practice, they, we'd put the pads on, and they're like, ah, we get to hit, you know? And, and, and don't get me wrong, th that's a good thing. It, football is good because it's the only place you can hit somebody and not get arrested. So, <laughs> so we would say, we're going to learn how to block today. And they'd say, great, we get to hit people. And I'd say, okay, get down in your stance. I said, angles is power. We got to build a foundation. We have angles, you have power. Angles in your knees, angles in your ankles, angles in your hips. So they get down in that stance. And I'd say, okay, now just stand there. And then I would start talking about scripture and about what God said and the foundations of God. And they'd be standing there. And they're like, okay, what, what are we doing here? Now their legs are quivering and they're starting to, and they're like, when are we going to learn the block? I'd say, you're not ready yet. Because what we were doing, we were building a foundation. We were building a foundation we were going to build on. So then the next thing I'd say, okay, get up after about a half hour. I'd say, now get up. And they'd say, when do we learn to block? I said, tomorrow. You're not ready yet. 
I said, tomorrow we'll take the first step. So they get down in the stance the next day, the next day they would take the first step. That was their power step. That's the one you press and take may have impact. It's important. It's important. And then they would stay in there for a half hour. And then the next day would be taking your, take the ground step. Now we take the ground. You know what the culmination of it is? There was a young man that was about maybe 155 pounds. And so we taught him how to block, taught him all the foundations, taught him all those things. And he went against the guy across from him who was about 230. Big offset there. Leverage physics, not good. And I said, now you know what you've been taught. Now look, now do it. So he got down in his stance first time. So he saw the big guy. He looked at the giant. He saw it. And what did he do? He forgot everything he had learned. He just raised up. Big guy stuck him, drove him back. So I grabbed him and I said, look at me, focus. Look at me. What have you been taught? Now do it. The next time he got in his stance, kept his angles, took his power step, took the take the ground step, got underneath the guy and drove him down the field. And I grabbed his mask. I said, son, do you realize what God could do if you give him that? That's what God wants to do in each one of our lives to make us great. The foundations of those things, of what we look at as character and its deep foundations. I had a friend just call me up and he was building a chicken coop. I don't know why he was building a chicken coop. He got his children chickens and he was building it in his backyard. So I went over to see how he did it. And he, he kind of like leveled out the ground and just started building a chicken coop. And I thought, well, I was in construction. My dad was a bricklayer. And I thought, you got to have a foundation. You got to dig. Well, he just leveled the ground, started building a chicken coop. Didn't need a foundation. And I thought, wow, that doesn't make sense because I've been down in Center City. I was in construction in the city, and I saw those skyscrapers, and I saw how deep they have to dig to be able to have that foundation to support that skyscraper. The problem is, men, that some of us want to live skyscraper lives with chicken coop foundations. We got to dig deep into this word. The character, the moral character, depends on who governs our lives, the foundation of that. Every choice reveals our character. We've heard this. Every choice reveals what the roots are of our character. And what he's saying about Timothy, we see it in the in first and second Timothy. He is sincere, he's genuine, he's loyal. He's he's he has a deep foundation. God is governing his life. So Paul is trying to draw out of him what's in him. Godliness is is working out what God has put in you. So as he sees that, we look at the character of the man, and it's always revealed in the battle. Character is always revealed in the battle. And so we look at that, and it takes discipline. Discipline, what is that? Advanced decision-making. Making a decision in advance to suffer the sacrifices of what's required to reap the rewards. What's the difference? Because we see this, as we get to this, we're going to talk about perilous times, and it's going to say what? Lover, love, men are lovers of self and lovers of pleasure rather than God. Pleasure is all about the immediate. We all have decisions to make. Suffer the immediate pain for the ultimate pleasure or meet the immediate pl pleasure and, and suffer the, the ultimate pain. So as we look at character, he's saying 
He's looking at the character of the man. That's what, that's what we're looking at today. And it's disciplined, you know, foundations, deep, you know, a deep abiding faith in the one. And so what, is the, what does Paul ask us to be? He talk, Jesus talks about this all the time. He calls people unto discipleship. It disciplined, disciplined ones, ones pursuing, teachable. And so as we look at that, we're going to say that everybody here, I pray, is a disciple. Because all disciples are believers. Here's the problem. Not all believers are disciples. These are the things that we need to start examining within ourselves. Because this call, but for you, is imperative. It's personal. It's direct. It should, it should pierce every one of our hearts. It should, it should require us to take a step back and see what is governing our lives. Because it's revealed in the battle. And I'm not talking about the battlefields out there. I'm talking about the battlefields we face every day. That we have to make a choice who's governing our hearts. So as we look at that, you know, we took it as, as, as we become these disciples. What does it ask us to be? Ambassadors. Uh, bring a message from another kingdom. If, I, if I'm a disciple of this Jesus, if, if, I, am, if I am committed, if I'm making those advanced choices, I am... I am in, in put, putting godly habits into my life, I'm doing the things that I'm called to do, then I should be an ambassador. The problem is, guys, you can't be an ambassador until you become a pilgrim and a soldier on this world. Some of us just like being ambassadors. We like to have an intellectual knowledge of God. We like to have our, our heads filled with facts about God. Why? So we can tell people. Knowledge puffs up. But wisdom, the practicality of exercising that out in my life, in fellowship with Jesus Christ, who will supply all my needs to be able to, what? Walk in that. Walk in the power of that. He has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and a sound mind. So we look at this as, as we talk about the, the character of the man. So what's our problem? We can't start wrong and finish right. So if every day I get up and I look at my day and my life in light of myself, how I feel, my circumstances, I'm defeated. But if I start with God, if I start with him about what he says about me as a man, if I start with him, what he says about my circumstances, my future, my hope, but it all starts with a foundation. See, we all like to know where we're going, but we don't know where we came from. We don't know our origins. And if you have a worldview here today that doesn't answer those four questions. Origin. Where did I come from? Meaning. What's life all about? Morality. What's right from wrong? Good and evil. And destiny. Where do I go when I die? Your worldview is not sufficient to help you have impact. So as we look at this, you know. So Paul is giving him this divine imperative to, to walk forward. So as we look at this, this divine imperative and as, as we go, it's, it's, it's ministry for us is when divine resources meet human needs for, through willing vessels. And see, God is always present in our lives. This is what Paul is trying to say to him here. God's always present. But he manifests himself to a man that's willing to turn, that's willing to look. 
And he says, but he's going to say to each man, but for you. So when we look at these trials and persecutions that Paul had mentioned, it's, we, we're going to suffer these every day. We don't look at it as, um, you know, we're being like some countries where we're being killed for our faith. But if we look at it, those trials meet us every day. And in, 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 the book of, in the Gospel of Mark, it says that, it's interesting, in chapter 2, he says that Mark says that Jesus fasted 40 days. And then he was hungry. And guess what? That's when the enemy showed up. He wants to meet us in that place. Here, we, our greatest need, spiritual, to start with God. When we finish that, the minute we finish, we're going to realize our fleshly needs. And now we have to make a decision because the enemy is going to show up. That's where the battle's fought. That's where the fellowship is won. Right then, that's why God says that he allowed the nation of Israel to wander in the desert for 40 years so that he could test them and let them know what was in their hearts. That their greatest need was spiritual because what? I gave you manna. Their greatest vehicle was faith, trusting this God that had revealed that it was always present, but as they turned to him, he revealed himself. And so we see these things every day. It's like, we're, you know, at work, my boss doesn't treat me right. He disrespects me. Well, what is God going to say? But for you, love your enemies. Oh, there's a culture of sex, drugs, and lies. But for you, purify your heart, be holy, and sanctify me. My wife doesn't treat me right. She disrespects me. But for you, love your wife like Christ loved the church, sacrificially, unconditionally. Wash her in the word of God. My kids don't respect me. But for you, don't provoke your children to wrath, but raise them in the nurture and training of the admonition of God. I feel shame or guilt or unworthiness, but for you, I loved you with an everlasting love. And you are a blood-bought child of God. So as we look at these things, Paul is giving that imperative to Timothy, and he says in verse 4, uh, we'll go to verse, uh, verse 14, he says, he says, continue. But you, he says, but you continue. What does that mean? Continue means abide. It means dwell, make your home. In other words, we can't just abide in this word. This word must abide in us. It must be at home in our hearts, in our lives. It must be a part of who we are. Because how do we know that? We look at it and he says, Paul says, this is, you know, abide in this face. So we, if we look back to verse 10, what is Timothy to be abiding in? He, buzz, he says to him in verse 10, but you have carefully followed my doctrine. So may, are you at home in the, in the word of God? Is the word of God at home in you? What are we talking about there? Well, we're talking about in the beginning, God, the foundation. Why? Because our foundations are being attacked today. I just heard yesterday that the United Methodist Church right up the road in, 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 uh, towards Pottstown is being asked by the by the corporate heads that they have to deny that the, the, fir the first chapter of Genesis is real, that it's, that it's just, it's not real, and that um, Jesus didn't really die on the cross. They're having to make a decision. If they don't make that decision, they have to pay back the church for all these, the things that the church has invested in. This is what's happening today. So we look at the foundations. We see how all the sacred things of God are being um, 
challenged by God, but we have to know that in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And he created man as what? The highest order of his creation. To what? To be under dominion, under authority, in authority, over all that he created. To be in charge. To what? To cultivate. To make prosperous. Right? He puts man in dominion, under what? And to then what? Be word-oriented. The word of God defines everything in the man of God's life. Every need, everything is met in the word of God. He is satisfied by the word of God. Anything he experiences in the physical world, the sensual world, what? That he gains the what? Significance by doing meaningful day's labor, tending to the garden. He gains satisfaction from doing what is right. Don't eat from the tree. The word of God defines everything. It defines beauty. He sees a sunrise, a sunset, sees beauty. God created that for me. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Everything that he partakes of in essential is defined by the word of God. What does the enemy do? The enemy lies to man and says what? Is God all good and is he all great? First doubt God. And then he gets what? Once he can create doubt. He then makes him not word-oriented, but image-oriented. Look at the tree. Now in the fall, we are now image-oriented. And we need to get back to being word-oriented men, that every need is met in God's word. Significant satisfaction. As, as relational beings, we have, three, we have three great needs. The security that we're loved. That our life has significance and purpose and impact and that we're satisfied. You'll get those things from one or two places, in God or in the world. But that's your choice because God's going to say to you, but for you, man of God, make the choice. So instead of now we have dominion, we're supposed to be word oriented. So we look at that and, and, and as we look at that foundation of that, as God makes that alive to us in this relationship, he comes to what? Normal men. And what do we see? We see Abraham. A man born in idolatry. Note the wrong gods all around him. Dysfunctional. What does it say in in the book of Acts? That God appeared to him. And right then, Abraham responded. What happened? Something now, because he returned and looked, something now was weightier in Abraham's life. It's called a God, I call it a God quake. That means you take a stone, you throw it in water, there's ripples. It just displaced something else. When a greater, when something greater displaces something lesser, that should be a God, that should be a quake within your life that ripples effect into every area of your life. And what does Abraham become? The man, the friend of God. And what? He bore a nation from him. That's what God wants from you. That's greatness. Fulfilling the calling of what you were created for. God wants to do that in men of God today, to bore nation of them, of God-seeking, God-following people. We look at Moses as he comes to him. Dysfunctional background, taken out of his home. What is he going to say? He's going to say Moses calls to him from a burning bush because Moses was willing to turn. God quake. God speaks to him. God is initiates. He wants to be made known. He wants to reveal himself. He's waiting for men to respond. What does he say to Moses? Lay down what's in your hand. Lay it down before me. 
Are we doing that daily? Are we laying down what's in our hands, whether it's a a carpenter's hammer or whatever that is, your vocation, whatever you do, whatever you have, your resources, are we laying it down so God can bless it, anoint it and give it back to us and now say, go deliver a nation. Go deliver a people that's in the sphere of your influence. Who's in the sphere of your influence is your heart burden for them if they don't know Christ. Do you weep and do you pray for them urgently every day? We see him as the God of David. Where he takes a man out of the sheepfold that every day, if we're willing to seek him in the midst of the dailiness of taking care of the sheep, tending to the sheep, hard work, painful work, meticulous work every day, acknowledging God, knowing God, seeing God in all things that what? That when he calls him, he's ready to step on the battlefield and can rightly define the battle. That's the first part of victory, rightly defining the battlefield because I'm already coming forth from victory. I'm not looking for victory every day. I'm coming forth from victory. I'm not looking to the world for anything, for significance, satisfaction, love, or victory. I get that from God. I come in with now to able to impact my environment. He brings him to the battlefield. He rightly defines it. He looks at the giant. Giant's not circumcised, not of God. What does he say? Giant's going to fall. What does he do? Attack the battlefield while the rest of the men have the same armor, the same stuff, the same resources, but can't attack the battlefield. And he slays giants. Too many men are living in fear. Too many men are living in their imperfection. Because we're starting wrong. We're starting on the wrong foundation. God is the God of David. And then he says, now David be a king to lead a nation. But here's the greater part. You're part of the messianic line that Christ would come forth. That's us. We are the vessels to go tell the world that Christ is coming. Do you have the urgency of heart? Are you living like that every day? Is there a passion within you saying, but for you, man of God, but for you? He's the God of Jehoshaphat, the king, where he comes out onto the battle. He sees the Ammonites, the Moabites, nations way powerful than him, like what we see today in the world. What can I do? There's nothing I can do. There's all these things just pushing. The church has no place that's surrounded. What does he do? He depends on the word of God when Solomon dedicated the temple. And he said, God, when we come before you because we have sinned and we cry out to you from this place. Are you not the God that is sovereign over all things? Have you not delivered your people in the past? And will you not deliver me today? We need to have a history with God. We need to be saying to God, are you not, have you not, and will you not? That today I can take the land. What does he say? This is not your battle, Jehoshaphat. You stand before me. What is he saying? Be vulnerable. Be able to surrender. Yes, you're not perfect. You're not always right. You don't always need to be in control. That's the lie. See, instead of being 
in dominion over things, we now take that and dominate and intimidate and control because the enemy has lied to us and told us what greatness looks like. It's a lie. It's a lie. He says, Joseph had to stand before me. Be vulnerable. Be open. What does he say to Jacob? Jacob says, bless me, Lord. Bless me. What does he say? Who are you? I am Jacob. I'm the conniver. I'm the swindler. I'm the liar. What does he say? I rename you Israel. Governed by God. When we're vulnerable before God, he can redeem, rename, and repurpose. We stop at being redeemed and we get renamed. We don't allow him to repurpose. We don't walk in it. It's not experiential. It's not daily, moment by moment. Because we're image oriented. We go to God and get that spiritual nourishment. And then he says, I'm hungry. Now what? I fall back to what's familiar. To what reigns my heart. What governs my heart. That's what he wants to expose. He's not standing there as this overseer going, see, I told you. He's saying, give it to me. Give me that hunger and watch what I can do with it. Give it to me. But we don't. We grab control. That's the lie. So he says to Jehovah, Joseph, be vulnerable. And what does he say? This is not your battle. But what does he say? Step onto the battlefield. Engage the enemy. And what does he say? And see my deliverance. See my deliverance. So as we look at that, we're saying, Paul's saying to Timothy, be rooted in my word. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like. It's, it's fellowship. It's experiential. It's, yes, it's intellectual, but it's experiential. It's, a, it's, 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 it's meeting those innermost needs, desires, once that you now can walk in the fullness and confidence and authority of the God that created all things. Because he will go before you into battle. By faith. He says to him, manner of life. He says, you followed my doctrine, my manner of life. What is that? Conduct. Depends on the authority in our lives. The integrity of it all. The man, it's, it's our conduct. How we live it. How we walk it out. Integer. Integrity. What is that? Completeness. It says we are complete in Colossians in Jesus Christ. Rooted. Integer. We are complete in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the express image of God and we are complete in him. Our integrity needs to be rooted in Christ. Our conduct. And are we vulnerable before him? James 4 talks about that. He says the problem with us is that you, why is there wars in your hearts? Why are all these struggles going on between your wife and your children and your, your workmates and this and that? Why are all these wars going on? He says, it, are you not struggling over what? Who has authority in your heart? Who has authority in your heart? He says, you don't ask because you don't think you need. You got it. I got it, God. You don't receive because when you ask, you ask amiss. You ask for your own pleasure to get your needs met. Here's the problem, guys. We stay on that side of it. 
in our marriages, our children, our, our parenting, in our workplace, we're going to be offended. And if you can be offended by man, you're not surrendered to God. Because a man that is not surrendering those things back to God can be shamed. And if a man is shamed, he's going to do one of two things. He's going to retreat in selfish passivity or he's going to attack in selfish aggression. So we can sit there and be more worried about our reputation and be, have that chicken coop mentality of just leveling the ground so that before men and in the church community, we look like that guy that which should be on Gospel Magazine, the cover of it. But when we go home, when we interact with our wives, are we being that man? Character shows up in the battle. It shows up in that crisis moment. So when we ask these things, Paul, what does James say in, the, in James 4? He says, submit. What does submission look like? We look at it as commit. See, I was good at that. I could commit because as a football player, you knew if you needed to get faster, you went to the track. If you needed to get stronger, you wanted to get to the gym. I could commit to that. Why? Because I wanted to make the football team. So I could commit to it. But guess what? Once I made the football team, I went, okay, now what? What's the next thing? And if the next thing's not better, what am I going to do? I'm going to retreat back to what's comfortable. See, there's glass ceilings in every one of our lives. There's quitting points where we get to a point in our walk with God where he says, surrender this to me. That's the first part of submission. Surrender. Because you can't really commit to it until you surrender to it. The authority of it. So if I'm surrendered to this God, I can commit and walk in that. But am I surrendered? I can commit to things. I can do noble things. But is it from the heart of God? Am I trusting him in all that I do? And so we look at that. He then says, and, and you followed me in my purpose, aim of life. We must, for our purpose, keep the end in sight. The glory of God. The end must be kept in sight, not the immediate or the temporal. Which says we are a workman. We are workmanships in God's hand. We are his poema, his artwork. We are the vessels he wants to you to go to, to paint a picture in your life of, of the grace and goodness and glory of God unto the, your sphere of influence where he's placed you in the midst so that you go out and have impact. And makes your name great. And then he says, you have followed my faith. Faith is different than belief. Faith is a response to what God initiates. And it's not just a response. It requires an action. It requires something of you. It requires you to make a decision and an action. Belief is just the gaining of knowledge. I can believe there's a God. I can believe in God. I can believe in Jesus. I can have a belief because I, I've gained facts about him. I've gained intellectual knowledge. But until that becomes faith, where it's a reality, that requires me now to walk in that, 
to trust it. It's, it's, an, it's a extreme confidence that I now walk in it because I've known this to be true. I've seen it and experienced it because God did it. It's not me just doing good things or, or behavior conduct, you know, changing my behavior, behavior modification, fixing my conduct, which is fleeting. That's hard. I talk to Christians, men, and I say, they'll say, man, it's hard serving the Lord. It's because you're doing it in your own power, your own authority. Paul knows this, as I, I wanted to show you this in uh, you know, we look at this and, and we talk about the writer of this message, this, uh, impl- this uh, imperative to, to but for you God, men of God. It says uh, in Acts 26, it says, and this is him recounting when he, when he met the Lord. He says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. So I said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. But rise, stand on your feet, for I have appeared to you for the purpose to make you a minister and a witness, both of the things which you have seen and the things which you will yet re- I will yet reveal to you. I will deliver you from the Jewish people as well as from the Gentiles, to whom now I send you, to open the eyes of the, of the, uh, in order to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in him. Paul gets knocked off his horse by the Spirit, the authority of God the Father, the Son, the Spirit, all in one, knocking him off the horse and saying, and he knows it's divine, he says, who are you, Lord? He knows this is divine. Listen, Paul was rooted in the word of God. He knew he was a he was a Pharisee. He studied it from a young man. He just had the wrong master. When the authority of God, the spirit of God called and boom, impacted him. How do we know it was a reality now in Paul's life? Because he had to make a decision right then to either to 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 surrender his religion to a relationship empowered by God. Or to go back to that old way. And he knew this was divine. He knew it was of God. Some of us know God is pressing on our hearts, but we are pushing him away and saying, no, not your will, God, my will. How do we know that? Because guess what? What does God say to him? Get up. Get up. Get on your feet. Stand up. Yeah, these are all your circumstances look like that. Your life is going through this. I got this trial in my life. Get up. Stand up. I have a purpose for you, but for you, man of God. How do we know it's a reality in Paul's life? He says, go. He sends him. What does Paul do? He goes. That's why the reality of what Paul's saying to Timothy here is an authentic witness. He's saying, this is my gospel. This is my manner of life. This is my faith. This is my purpose. Why? Because it's from God. Why? Because God is the author of life. He's the author of purpose. He's the author of hope. He's the author of all things. And if I entrust it to him and receive it from him, I can go forth and what? Impact the world. 
The problem is that most of us as men, if we're honest with ourselves, we're getting knocked off our horses by the world. And guess what? Once the world's got you down, what's it going to do? It's going to pummel you. It's going to keep you down. Why? Because it's going to get you to focus on yourself. Love of self. Love of pleasure. How can I? I got to go back to that old way. The old ways of what I used to do things. When I was lonely, I did this. When I was, you know, tired, I did this. When I was angry, I did this. Now we're back in the law. And that's what Paul, the, the message that Paul is trying to get to Timothy. And as we keep going on, because I'm running long, I'll just say, he, say, he goes on to say, and then what you have in verse 14, he'll say again, that you must continue in these things which you have learned and have been assured of, knowing from whom you have learned them. What we're learning here, guys, is that the word of God is foundational. We can build on it. It's, it's relational. There's a father. We're sons. We're in the family. It's relational. It's directional. I am the way. I'll show you. I've gone before you. Here's the problem. It's going to require everything. It's going to require you to go the way of the cross. He's gone before us to show us we have to go the way of the cross. We have to die to the bondage of that old man. That's daily I have to look at that cross. I have to preach the gospel to myself every day. I have to look at that cross to see the mercy of God. And then I can realize the grace of God. And though he goes on in the verse 15 and he says, And that's from a child having known the holy scriptures, which are able to make man wise unto salvation by faith through Jesus Christ. If you're here today and you don't know that, the scripture, and it's going to go on to say in verse 16 that this, this Bible is God-breathed. It's from the heart of God that created you. And he's saying that it will lead you unto salvation. Why? Because it, takes you, it, it, it shows you the greatest need that you have is your sin, and it takes you to the Savior. And that if you're willing to put your faith the confidence of what he has done, it will save you from your sin. And to us, that's the good news. Because why? Because he's saying that he wants to take, <clears throat> make each man what? Profitable. In verse 17, he says that the man of God may be complete and thoroughly equipped for every good service. That means fit for Use and fit for service to go out and change the world one life at a time. So I just wanted to share a little bit. Do I have time or no? Am I running over? How long am I? So real quick, I'll just run through it real quick. And, you know, I was raised in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania, and um, Dysfunctional home. I mean, hardworking parents did all the right things, but they were kids raising kids. They got married at 17 and 19. And um, working through all kinds of dysfunctional backgrounds, dysfunctional upbringing, alcohol, different things, drugs, pornography, things like that in the home. Um, 
But I don't want you to understand here that I'm com- coming from a victim's mentality because when I came to the realization of what it was to be a husband and a dad when I was in it, I realized how hard it was. And um, it humbled me. And because of the change that my parents saw in my life, they came to know Jesus Christ. And I called my dad one day. God put it on my heart, and I said, um, you know, Dad, I'm going to tell you something, because I know my dad had struggled with his past a little bit. I said, Dad, I'm going to tell you something. I'm glad God bore me into this family. You taught me good things of hard work. You were a good dad. You got up and went to work every day. And I said, I know you got into that truck some days and wept because you weren't the man that you wanted to be. I know. And I know you're letting the enemy have that territory. I said, but don't do it. You were a good dad. You were a good dad. I wanted to set him free from that, that he could realize that. So I'm not coming forth from that, but I'm just giving you the background. But so when I was young, I was a heavy little kid. So I was made fun of a lot, didn't fit in, wasn't, you know, was kind of ostracized, put outside. So football was the thing. My dad said to me, you want to play football? Well, football to me was you picked up the ball, you played around, you tossed the ball around and you got tired. You went in the house, you did that. I went to the football field and I saw all these guys, 100 guys sitting in the field. I'm like, OK, what's this? And then this big guy got out of the truck and it was like a big muscle guy and had cement like on on him like he'd been working all day and he had this shirt across him and all it said was coach. I said, I guess this guy's in charge. His name was Coach Litzio. He got up in front of us. He said, you guys might think football is a game, but it's not. It's a war. And there's an enemy. And that enemy's on the other side of the field. And we got to be in better shape. Because guess what we're going to do? We're going to run and run and run and run. Now football had been redefined for me. I didn't know if I wanted to play it. But guess what? It got me accepted because I could play. So now football became a bigger thing in my life than it was meant to be. It got me accepted. It got me into the group. So now I was accepted as that. And so now that I was in that group, at a young age, they started to party. So my need to belong was stronger than I didn't know who I was as a young kid. And so guess what? I said I said I would never drink because in my family, everything revolved around drinking. So I used to see the drunks. And and it's 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 funny because, you know, we look at, at drinking and we go, well, we look at the verse in the Bible says, don't be drunk with wine, be filled by the Holy Spirit. And we go, well, OK, how many drinks can I have before I'm drunk? And I say, it's not about how many drink, it's the influence. What's influencing your life? You can be filled with God's spirit or say, how many drinks does it take me to be influenced just a little bit? But my whole, the whole world revolved around drinking. So I said, I'm never going to drink. And the funny thing about it is the only person in a room that doesn't know they're drunk is the drunk. You always ask the drunk, say, you're drunk. No, I'm not. So I said, I'm never going to drink. But guess what? I started drinking. 12 years old. Started partying. So now I knew it was part of my life. It was part of, it was performing. I could perform. I'd be accepted. 
And what came with that was drinking, the partying. So that went on into, into, there was times in my life when I wanted to quit football, but it became my identity. It was like, oh, there's Mike, he's the football player. There's Mike, he's the football player. And so I, <clears throat> it became a part of who I was. And when I went to high school, I started even now to get affirmation. You know, so where good things can sometimes be the enemy of great. You know, God wants to make us great to fulfill the calling of what he has designed us for. And sometimes we settle for these noble things in our life, and they're good, but it's the enemy of great. You know, people say, well, athletics, that's a good thing. Yeah, it's not great. So I started to get the affirmation of that. And, uh, but again, I was still building on a weak foundation of insecurity, fears of this little kid. And so right at that time, a coach came to me and he said to me something that impacted me. He said, if you make it to the NFL, he said, you'll have your life will be perfect. You'll have everything you want. I thought, okay, that's what I'll do. So I went to college, and now I, I didn't start in high school till my senior year because I went to a bigger high school. So my senior year, I, had a, I made all city, but nothing really great, so I had small colleges looking at me. One of them was East Stroudsburg. And if you didn't know that, ESU, East Stroudsburg University in the Poconos, it's the Ivy League of the Poconos. But as I went there, it was a new environment. So I stepped into this. And now there's, you know, I'm walking in this new environment on my own. So what did I knew? If I could perform, I'd be accepted. And guess what? And we could party. So I went to college mainly to play football and to party. That was the reason I went there. And so as I, I got there, I got into some trouble in my sophomore year and I got kicked out. And so I got angry because they took away who, my identity. And so what did I do? I went to the weight room. I got a job. I had to get a job working in a furniture store, stacking furniture, and had, went to the weight room every day, three hours a day, and lifted and ran and lifted and ran. And I went up to, from 225 to 245, and I benched 440 pounds. And when I came back to college, I came back stronger and angrier because I wasn't going to let them take this from me again. And so I went on in my junior and senior year. My, I, I was honorable mention All-American. Then my senior year, I was first team All-American. And so as I came out of that year, um, there was about NFL draft came up. I, I thought they told me I was going to get drafted middle or late rounds. Didn't happen. So I was a free agent. So I had five teams call me to come out and try out for their team as a free agent. The Eagles being one of them. And so everybody said, wow, well, how did you pick the Eagles? Because it was a local team and it was, you know, you love the Eagles. I said, no, they're the only ones that offered me a signing bonus. And I needed a car to get me to Philadelphia. So they gave me a $5,000 signing bonus. It bought me a Delta 88 diesel. So guess what? I jumped into that. This is the first car I owned. I jumped into that diesel like a proud owner of a diesel car. I drove down to the vet, you know, vet stadium and I pulled in and I see Mercedes, BMW, didn't matter. I pulled it in my diesel, blah, 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 diesel pulling it. They said, who is this white boy? So when I went there, there was 30 guys for seven positions at linebacker. And so all I knew to do was get up every day and perform. And as I did that, I assimilated because we all had things in common. We all were performance-based. Everybody looks at the NFL. They look at pro sports. They look at this and go, that's the ultimate. 
Why are those guys walking away? They're, in the, they're right in the, the, the heart of their career. Why are they walking away? It's because they found out what it's all about. They found out the truth. It's a business. And it isn't all it's cracked up to be. Locker rooms in the NFL, NBA, Major League Baseball are the most insecure men that you will ever want to meet because everything is based on performance. Everything in their lives, if they don't know Christ. And that's what everybody's shooting for. And so, as I went there, all I knew was to get up and to go to work every day. So I did everything I had to do. So they started cutting and cutting and cutting. As it went down, I was the last rookie linebacker. Now we were down to eight. One of us had to go. All veterans and me. And so the last game of the year, I thought I had a good game. And um, they came up to me after the game and said, listen, they said, we had some injuries on the line. You know, we might have to let you go. We're going to let you go. So I, they, they let me go, actually. And they said they're going to bring me back. So they said, go train. So I went home four weeks, back to the track, back to the rate room. Why? Because this was the ultimate. I had to make it. This is all what life was about. One week, Eagles lost. Second week, Eagles lost. I'm still running. Third week, Eagles lost. It's a pretty regular story back then. <laughs> I know you pay, your fans are in pain, but I'd say this is the truth. So fourth week, they won. They finally won. They were 1-4, but guess what happened? There was an injury in the linebacking core. Guess who it was? Bill Cower. Bill Cower was the one linebacker that was in my way, so he got hurt, so they called me back. And I said, you know what? I'm never letting them cut me again. I said, I'm putting a stake in the ground. This is it. So that first week, we played the Washington Redskins down, and I was put on every special team. I went out that week and made every special team's tackle in that game. In one week, I was the leading special team's tackler on the, on the team. Within a few weeks, back then, a few Eagle fans remember Jerry Robinson, he wanted out of Philadelphia because he was actually an outside linebacker. They had him inside, and he was getting beat up. He didn't like inside because he had to headbutt all these big offensive linemen. He didn't like that, so he was looking to get out. So he said he had a bad shoulder, which could have been bad, but I don't know. But I had a, uh, by that time now, he was halfway through the games. He was getting injured. Now with, I'm, I was out on the street. I'm now playing in NFL games. I'm actually playing. And so um, I had a contract clause that if I started one game, I would get a, a bonus. So all year long, I was hanging out with Jerry. I go, Jerry, how about it? How about you help a brother out here? You know, can, can your shoulder hurt a little more this week? Than... And uh, he's like, nah, nah, nah. So last week, we're put, last week of the season, we're playing the Redskins. So Marion Campbell is the head coach. He walks down the locker room, and he looks, and he goes, uh, Jerry, how's your shoulder? He goes, I don't think I'm going to be able to go today. And he looks at me, and he winks. I'm like, Yes. So I got my bonus. But from that point on, I was now slated in as the starter. So I went from being on the street to being the starter. And the problem was is that the partying, the things like that, the, the resources now at my disposal, the things that I had, the long stories, all those things, but they consumed my life. And the more I gave to them, the more emptier I was, the more frustrated, the more, listen, there's no more man that's despairing that attains everything he was told that would give him everything and finally gets it and it's not there. That was me. And I had this burning sense inside of me there was something more, that there was something greater. 
You know, in the NFL, everyone trains for different things. I remember when I first came in, I just wanted to make the team. Then you want to start. Well, then you want to make it to the Super Bowl. Some guys are just happy making the team. Some guys just train for that. The problem is, guys, that's the way we walk our Christian walk. Some of us just train to want to be on the sidelines. We don't want to be in the game. We're okay being comfortable. We're okay that because we are comfort seekers. We're not truth seekers. We're comfort seekers. We need to be charged. We need to seek God diligently because we're lazy. We're, we're comfort seekers. We need to seek him honestly because why? Because we're, we're basically prideful. We have to seek him honestly because we're prejudiced. We have prejudice. We come, in, we come into nothing neutral, even to God. We come in with our own determination of who God is. And so some of us just train to, to, to be on the sidelines. God wants us in the game. We knew that. Listen, your goal was to get on the field. It was to walk over that stripe to step on the field. But guess what? The minute you stepped over that stripe, there was going to be impact. You were either going to give impact or you were going to get impacted. But you had to know when you step in the game, you're going to have impact. Men of God, we have to say, but for you. That we want to have impact. That we're going to be wanted to be rooted and grounded down deep into this word. That everything that we have in this life is dictated and determined by his word and in the, the, the authority of his word in the power of his Holy Spirit. That he will empower us to walk forward by faith and not by sight. We got to be men of impact. Too many men of God are being impacted. I'll finish by telling you, um, I came to know, finally, Jesus Christ, when every relationship, quality relationship in my life was gone. I had nothing left. There was nothing. I was still playing in the NFL. I was in the NFL. I had a BMW. I was driving around the streets of Philadelphia, nights, weeping, lost. Had everything the world had to offer, but had nothing was surrounded by more people than I've ever been around. People wanted me to be where they were. Was doing commercials. They were talking about potential all pro and this and that and all kinds of things. I had nothing. I had rich. I had money. The problem was I was poorer than I ever had been in my life. The problem is I squandered it all. A whole other story next time I come, if they ever let me back as I ran over, is I was a $1,200,000 in debt when I left the game. And I'm here to tell you today, God healed that debt. I never claimed bankruptcy. I came to the table, and I'm telling you, miraculous things happened. To the penny, money came from places that were, it was miraculous. Again, when man is willing to turn and to receive and to treasure and then apply to walk in this, lives are changed and miracles happen. Divine resources come down through us and impact human history. We have men. We are men to have an impact. The reason the world is in the shape today is the men of God are not rising up and having impact. Last night, I was working with uh, Mark Abrams in the city. We have. It's called Forever Mentored. We're mentoring 
young, young guys in the inner city. And we used to do, I still do outreaches. I work with FCA, but I do outreaches to the sports outreaches. And we'd have, we'd have 100 kids there. We'd get, maybe get one or two that would come and want to hear the gospel. Now we went to single moms in the church because it's being fostered at home at least. No dads, no men in the gap. You know, if you look in the Bible, it's, it's God will not honor, honor a nation that's, that's governed by women. It's not that they're any less. It was God's design that men govern over what? Two things, the church and the home. And we're vacant. We're not there. We're not engaged. We're not stepping on the battlefield. Why? Because we haven't sought the God that are you not, have you not, will you not? And so I came to know Christ, and he freed me up. And that was my ninth, se- I was, I was, uh, my ninth season in the NFL. I had played uh, six years for the Eagles, two years for the Dolphins, and my last year was in San Francisco. I was standing on the field, playing for the San Francisco 49ers, chance to go to the Super Bowl, standing across from John Elway. You young guys might not remember that name. Denver Broncos. And I looked around, and God spoke in my heart. This is your last game. And I looked around the stadium and I said, the first thing I thought of, I said, God, don't you know I'm a million dollars in debt? My contract could pay my debt. And you know what he said to me? That's a giant. Am I bigger than your giant? Are you saying I can't slay that giant? And he did. And so I walked away from the game of football. And started a life where I, you know, I'm thankful for Pastor Joe and this congregation, the men that were here and the, the family of God, because it's, it's based on the word of God, the power of God. Uh, I don't know where I'd be apart from that. And, and um, gave me an incredible opportunity to coach the football team here and, and raise up godly men and have the opportunity. But you know what? He didn't bring me here to impact those men. He brought a sinful man here to change his heart. And through it all, he chipped away at a, at a hardened heart and made me a better husband, a better father. Don't ask my son that because he's here down too. He had to play for me, so he might not say that. <laughs> but I want to tell you about one warrior who was probably the greatest warrior and example of a godly man to me. And I'll close on this. When I first came to hear the gospel, I was down in the gym and I'd been searching. And a man of God that working out just wasn't something he did. It was why he was doing it. It was his ministry. And he came to me and he said, it looks like you're searching. Nah, I got it. I got it. One week, two weeks, three weeks. Guess what? Calvary Chapel was right upstairs. The gym was in the basement. He says, you need to come up here to the gospel. So I came up to hear the gospel. And I came in the back and sat in the back and heard the gospel that there was a God that created me that loved me. The problem I had was sin. I knew I wanted to be forgiven. If you're here today and you don't know him, you know. And he said, I could be forgiven and I wanted that. And I received Christ. And I met a, uh, a young man there. And he was a Eagle fan and a football fan, and 
collected cards, and he said, came back, because I was hiding in the back. I didn't want anybody to know I was there. And he said, uh, you're Mike Regenbach. You play for the Eagles. I said, yeah. So I struck up a friendship with him, got to know him. And uh, every week he'd come to Bible study, and I'd talk to him, and he'd talk to his mom and things like that and get to know him. And I found out that um, he had leukemia. Fighting some difficult battles, real life stuff. But he knew his God. He had something I didn't have. And I wanted it. I went down to visit him at the hospital one time. He was going through chemotherapy, you know, blood transplants, you know, just different things that you go through in that brutal stuff. And I asked the nurses, I said, How's he doing? He said, He's a warrior. He goes around to all the wars. He tells the kids not to give up. God loves them. Jesus died for their sins. He was 13 years old. I was playing in Miami at that time, and I had the last time I had a chance, I had to talk with him. I said, uh, I said, you know, what's, what's weighing on your heart? And he told me that he didn't think he would live long enough to tell people about Jesus. And I said, pick up that mantle. I'll tell them about your God, and I'll tell them about our God, my God, and I'll tell them about you. And he wrote this before he went on. I lay me down in a peaceful sleep with memories of my dreams I keep of Jesus Christ and his flock of sheep. Thinking I'm dying, I begin to weep. Jesus gave all that he could give, so in heaven with God we all could live. Before he died, we all were slaves. I just want to say that Jesus saves. He came into this world without a bed. He didn't have a crown for his tiny head. Mary cuddled him when he would cry, but she couldn't cuddle him when he was going to die. Jesus the Lord hung on that tree to make a better life for you and me. He was so weary and tired, he wanted to rest. The soldiers didn't care. They pierced the sword through his chest. He tried to tame this world so wild, forgiving all sins of every man, woman, and child. Jesus Christ wiped away sin. If we believe in him, we will surely win. He wrote that at 15, right before he went home to be with the Lord. That's a warrior, man. He fulfilled the calling. He finished the race. He just didn't enter. He didn't run it. He finished. God is calling you today to do that. To be men filled and led with his spirit. But for you. Be filled and led with his spirit. But for you, be obedient to the word and be a man of prayer. But for you, love your wives like Christ loved the church. Stand in the gap for your children. Don't be their buddies. Don't just enter the race. Run it and finish it. And in all the confusion and chaos and lawlessness we see in the world, hear the call. But for you, man of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, for this time. I thank you uh, for your presence, Lord. I thank you for working here in the midst of these men. I'm thankful for each one of them, Lord, and, and, and the work that you've done in them and through them. Now, Lord, let us go forth from here in, uh, in the courage and, and the strength of your Holy Spirit, that your word would abide richly within us, 
And we would abide in that word, Lord, that we would go forth unto the world and proclaim the gospel, the good news, that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. So, Father, we thank you, Lord, for this day. Bless us as we go forth. And I pray we don't go forward without you, Lord. Go before us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.